And I'll begin reading in verse 17. On your notes, uh, we are going to be uh, looking again in depth at James 1, which is kind of a, a uh, companion passage to what we're reading. Uh, but Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. So tonight on your notes, as you look at the, at the James, and I think what I have in your notes there is uh, James chapter 1, verses 20 through 25, and it's in the Amplified. And the reason why we're going through that is that it's a companion passage to verse 16 of Colossians 3, uh, mainly the first phrase with the whole verse, which is to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And so what we're emphasizing is trying to make sure we can really wrap our mind around what it means uh, to allow the, the word of Christ to dwell in you richly. Uh, we mentioned last week that the word that's used there to dwell uh, means to be at home. The idea is that uh, in the same way that you are very comfortable in your own home, you know where everything is, um, that's kind of the idea, is to have this familiarity with the scripture. So that's why, again, as believers, we're always encouraging others and encouraging each other to read the Bible. And again, the goal is not to see how much of it you can read at once. It's not a race just to read through the entire Bible. It's basically, uh, you, would, you would approach the Bible in the same way that you approach real food. You know that no matter how much you eat today, you're going to have to eat again someday. Right? You can gorge yourself until you're ready to explode. And you may, even if you can fast for several days, you're going to get hungry again. Uh, so the idea is, is that you, you're going to eat for the rest of your life until you, until you die. And so when it comes to the Word of God, we're gonna, it's just a part of our daily habit. You know, in the same way we breathe, same way we eat food, uh, we need to read the Word of God. And so you've got to find whether it's a pace or a system that works for you. There is no one right way necessarily to read the Bible. You can't do it a wrong way. If you just hop around and pick and choose, that just makes things confusing. Um, and there's a lot of different ways to read the Bible, and I would encourage you to, to try different ways just because um, doing it differently, let's say from year to year, is good for your brain. Um, so if you want to read through the Bible one year, that's a great thing to do. And some people do that for their whole lives. Uh, if you want to, then there's other ways to read through, like for example, the New Testament very quickly, if you want to read through it several times in a year. So, for, so what I've done is I'll read like one gospel, so I'll read Matthew, then I'll go to Acts through Revelation. And then after I finish Revelation, I go back and I'll read Mark. And then Acts through Revelation. And then when I finish that, I'll go back and I'll read Luke. 
and then I mean, uh, J- uh, yeah, Luke, then jump to Acts, and then after that, go to John. So you so you skip one gospel because it's not like they're not exactly the same, but it's a it's a fast way a faster way to do it without trying to speed read because speed reading is not a really good idea with the Bible. You want to make sure you remember it. Uh, some people they read a chapter a day, unless it's like a one of the Psalms and there's only four verses. Uh, and then you read more than one chapter. But the idea is just to read it slowly um, so that you get something out of it. Uh, sometimes people find themselves falling asleep when they read the Bible. So don't read it before you go to bed. All right? uh, however, some people find that whenever they sit down to read the Bible, they get drowsy. So stand up. It's simple. I've done that many times. I've been tired. I just stand up. So I've even paced before. Just make sure you have an open area. You don't want to trip over things. Um, and then sometimes you can find yourself when you, if you're reading a familiar passage, you know, you can begin how to, you can begin to skim and you don't want to do that. So read to yourself out loud. That's, that's nothing wrong with that. It's just a good way to, to fo- all, all these are just different ways to help you focus on the, on the Bible. So you get something out of it. Uh, that's really what the point is. You want to get something out of it. And, uh, sometimes individuals will say, well, I've been reading my Bible every day and it just doesn't seem to make a difference. Well, what do, you, what do you want it to do? I mean, what kind of difference are you looking for? Especially if you've only been doing it for two months. You know, it's kind of like the individual who says, I've been going to the gym. Man, I've been, I've been going to the gym two weeks now. Ain't nothing happening. Yeah, well, congratulations. You go for two more weeks, ain't nothing going to happen either. You know, it's going to take you, but you, have, but you know what? If you're consistent after two years, you can be different. Your body's going to be different. Your strength's going to be different. So when it comes to Scripture, um, our lives are, are going to be changed by reading the Word of God. We're going to become familiar with the Word of God. So it's not always about necessarily seeing a visible change or feeling something different. You're, you're listening to what God is saying. You're gaining knowledge. Uh, and sometimes people say, well, I've been reading. I just can't remember nothing. Just keep at it. Because what will happen is, is so if you read the Bible on a regular basis, imagine how much of the Bible you're going, to, you're going to have read at the end of five years. That, that's going to be tremendous. Right? And that's kind of the point. And, and it's going to become more and more familiar, which is why sometimes you're going to want to make sure you stand up and read out loud because if you're reading and you're becoming very familiar, that again, we tend to skim. Uh, one of my favorite ways to read uh, the Bible is, um, I'm not sure, people call it different things. It's, it's kind of an immersion. And the idea would be, so you would take, for example, Colossians. Colossians is a very short book takes you 10 to 15 minutes to read it. So you read the entire book of Colossians every day for a month. Without even trying, you're going to remember some things out of that book. You know, and then the next month, take another short book like 1 John. Read it every day for a month. And then pick Philippians every day for a month. Alright? And, and again, doing that the first time in your life, there may be a lot of things you're still not going to remember. But if you do that for a couple of years, doing that kind of a method, and you're going to know some stuff. You really are. You're going to know some stuff. Also, when you read through the Bible and you get to Numbers and it goes through a bunch of genealogies, it's not a sin to skip it. Some people get all weird. Oh, if I skip that, I'm, it's like it's a sin. It's not a sin. Right now, if you never read it for your entire life, all right, there, are, there are some things you can learn from the, from the uh, genealogies. But just because you're skipping the genealogies doesn't mean you're, you're committing a sin against God. All right, so go ahead and skip that. It's okay. All right, it's not wrong. The main thing is for you to grow and understand what the, what the whole Bible is saying. There's a lot there, 
Um, and so skipping genealogies and all those kind of things is not necessarily a wrong thing. Uh, there'll be times when there'll be a Bible study and, and then that class they're going to go maybe in detail through a genealogy. Go, oh, wow, okay, and you're going to learn some things. But when it just comes to reading the Bible, do that. And, they, and again, that, then you become familiar with it. Uh, and, 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 there'll be certain, and then there'll be times when maybe a, someone's preaching and they'll, and they'll quote a verse, but they won't say where it's at. And you, and, but you're going to say, I know what that is. You may not know exactly where it's at. You go, well, I know that's in James. Or I know that's in Romans. All right, that's good. You're becoming familiar with, with the Bible, and, that's, and it's helpful. And then there'll be times when, when you may be tempted, and next thing you know, there's all kind of Bible verses flooding your mind. It's God the Holy Spirit helping you out, right? So that you are reminded that you're a believer and you, you're not supposed to be thinking what you're thinking or dwelling on what you're dwelling on or you need to resist whatever or do something different. Or maybe you suddenly feel convicted. You know, you treat somebody the wrong way and man, all of a sudden there's guilt there, which is a, can be a wonderful gift from God. And you, maybe you would not have had that maybe a couple of years ago, but because you're becoming more and more familiar with the Bible on your own reading, and then what, is what you're learning maybe on Sunday morning, and then maybe through another Bible study, you're, you're going to become a much different person. You're becoming more like Christ. And that really is the goal for us to all become more like Christ. Um, and that's, 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 that's the main tool that the Holy Spirit uses in our life is the Scripture. So in your notes, James chapter 1. James chapter 1, beginning of verse 21. He says, so get rid of all uncleanness and the rampant outgrowth of wickedness, and in a humble, gentle, modest spirit, receive and welcome the word which implanted and rooted in your hearts contains the power to save your soul. So in James, James is writing to believers. And there's some trouble there. And so he's giving them some instruction. So in that, number one, when he tells us to get rid of uncleanness, the idea is to recognize the sin in your life and basically begin to turn away from it. It begins with that. Just stop it. Whatever they're doing, just stop. And there are these people that he's writing to, they're having these conflicts, and there's people, there's, there's people that are jealous of each other. There's just these, these things that are going on. And he says, just stop it. Just stop the wickedness. And, and then in doing that, he also reminds them that in a humble, which means you, you are uh, submitting yourself to what the Word of God, he says, receive and welcome the Word. So that's an attitude that we are developed. So the idea is this. So, so when, I, when I'm listening to people uh, preach and teach the word of God, I want to learn what the scripture is saying. And if there is, so if there's a misunderstanding in my life of the verse, I want to know where I've misunderstood it because I want, I want to know what it says. Number two, if, 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 it, if, if the guy ends up, as he exegetes the scripture, ends up pointing out something in my life that I need to be reminded of, or something I need to get rid of, I, I want that. I, I want the correction. I want that, because I want to become different. I don't want to just, you know, be the same guy now that I, that I was 10 years ago. I don't want to be that guy. I want to change. Uh, think of it this way. Again, if, if, if you have a kid, and let's say your kid is very talented, whether it's musically, or they're, talented, uh, they're gifted intellectually, or they're gifted in athletics, and you end up hiring a coach for them to, to help them in one of those things to do even better, now, you may not think about it this way, but I guarantee you this is what you want from that coach. You want that coach to offer constructive criticism on a regular basis. You don't want that coach 
to tell your kid how good and great they are. They're never going to be challenged. What you want that person to do, you know, so when I, you know, I've coached high school ball for like 40 years now. And there's all, kids at all kinds of levels. And there's some kids that are really, really talented. And I will tell them that they're talented. But I don't just say, oh, man, you are so great. Got nothing to teach you. You've arrived. <laughs> you can play in the NFL right now. That, that hasn't happened. All right, what I'm going to do is we're going to go through drills, and I'm going to say, okay, now, you, you're, now their mistakes would be very different from a guy who may not be as talented or maybe hasn't played as long, but there's still things they can do to improve. And so if you're going to be a good coach, you're look, when you look at the critical eye, it's not critical to be, you're not being negative. Uh, the idea is you want to be discerning. You want to be able to, 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 to look at what's happening and, and help them to improve. Maybe whether it's a bad habit, whatever it happens to be. Uh, individuals who are, who are sprinters, a lot of times what a, what a track coach will do is, you know, they take film now of, of there, and so they, they, they will look at it frame by frame, which I think is like one one-hundredth of a second. And, you know, with a world-class sprinter, you're trying to shave one one-hundredth of a second off their time. Like if they run a, a 9.9800 meters, you're trying to help them run a 9.97. Because you know, there's all kinds of guys running that fast. And so the way you do this, they'll say, okay, you notice here, when you get in the blocks and you start, your head's still coming up. And you're like, you don't see it. But because it's still photography, his head's rising up one inch. They go, you got to give it down. All right? And they do all these little super tiny adjustments, and the coach is being critical. And, he's, and, the, and the athlete's never going to say, I win every race. What are you telling me? What are you telling me to do? I win every race. Well, they don't say that because the, because the coach is not helping you just to win every race. He's trying to train you for the future so you can beat every single white guy that comes your way. You know, I remember for a long time, Usain, uh, Usain Bolt was the number one sprinter in the world. Six foot four, you know, he was phenomenal. Well, I saw some of his early races. He wasn't winning. He was fast, but he wasn't winning. And his form was very different than it, than it was when he was in prime condition. Man, he had worked to where, I mean, he was like a, and every top spinner's that way. It's like a machine. They run the exact same way. I mean, it's incredible to watch, watch them perform. So the same thing happens then when it comes to when we, when we come to Bible study, when we hear the, when we hear the word of God being preached, uh, or when we're reading the Bible for ourselves. We want to be corrected. We want that to be done. And so the only way that's going to happen is, is, is you come with the attitude of submission. And it's not that you have to say anything. It's just, it's just kind of an, an attitude. I'm reading the Bible. This is what God is saying. And it doesn't matter, really matter what it says. I need to both believe it and I need to do it. Because it's right. That, that's really what it is. And so I, I need to be... Now, now, sometimes we may not like what it says. And, you, and it is good to make sure that you understand what it's saying. But once you've got that down... We need, to, we need to follow through what it says. And that's, what, that's all that he's saying here. That's the idea when it talks about the word of God dwelling in you richly. So again, it's not some kind of a feeling you get that you, that you feel spiritual. You might, and if you do, great. But that's not what he's talking about. Uh, this is a very practical, uh, everyday kind of thing he's talking about. Going on in James, verse 22. He also, he says, But be doers of the word, obey the message, and not merely listeners to it, Betraying yourself into deception by reasoning contrary to the truth. 
So we mentioned this last week briefly, and, that, and the main thing is this, is that we want to do what the scripture says. It, it is, it's about obedience. It's not just hearing it being read. It's not just the habit of reading it. It's not a good luck charm that if you read your Bible, everything's going to go great and be blessed. It's not how it is. The idea is for me to think different, to act different, to behave different. And so I need to follow through on what it says, period. Um, there was, a, I think I told you the story uh, recently. I, sometimes I forget which stories I've told and when I told them. But my dad one time led a guy to the Lord. This guy, got, my dad was in the Navy for a while. Well, actually for 20 years. But he was in the Navy. And I met a guy, led him to the Lord. He said the guy was a real jerk. He was married to a woman who was blind. And what he used to do was he moved the furniture around so she would stumble all over the place. Because, you know, when you're blind, you memorize in your head where everything is. Change the furniture, not tell them. They're going to run into things. And he thought that was hilarious. And uh, so he became a believer. And a few weeks later, my dad was over at the house, and he was talking to the wife. And they were just talking, and, and the lady was saying, you know, she was thanking my dad for sharing the gospel. And she said, I could tell. I, she goes, I know exactly when he got saved. And my dad said, oh, you do? She goes, oh, I know exactly when. And it, my dad said, well, how, how did you know? She said, he stopped moving the furniture. <laughs> Very first thing he did. You know why? Because the Bible talks about being kind, being good, doing what's right. Boom, he, that's what he wanted to do. So God also gives us the desire to do that. Uh, but again, don't wait around for that desire to hit you. Right? It's kind of a, a both and kind of thing. But that's, but that's the idea. So we want to make sure that we're doing what the Word of God says. So when it comes to our children, you know, some people get really um, sentimental and, and uh, emotional about their kids becoming believers. Now, you want your kids to become a believer. And sometimes we, 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 uh, we kind of have this thing where, we're, we're tr almost trying to manipulate our kids to say a prayer to receive Jesus. And the moment they do that, well, oh yeah, my kid's saved, my kid's saved. That's not a good thing to do. If, you if your kid wants to be in Christ, that's great. At the same time, remember that your kid might be doing that for all kinds of reasons. They might be doing that because they think it makes you happy. They might be doing it because they think that makes you proud of them. Now, maybe not. It can still be genuine. Young kids really can become believers. But what you want to see in their life is a change. That they're obeying what God says. So when your child becomes a believer and they argue with their sibling, when you, when you scold them for that, you also need to remind them that not only do they need to obey you, but they need to obey you because that's what God says. And they need to treat their sibling with kindness because that's what God says. They need, you want to make them sure they begin to understand that. These are things that God is commanding us. Some people think, oh, no, I don't want them to think that God is a God who just makes up a bunch of rules. And he's, no, that's not what they're going to think unless that's what you teach. What we teach is, no, God gives, us, gives mommy and daddy rules as well. And tell them why you want those in your life. If you explain to your kids why you want those rules, they're going to, have, they're going to pick up that same attitude. So it's how we present that to them. So if you're mean and cruel, you know, I've, I've even heard people say really crazy things to their kids. You know, I mean, I've even heard a lady one time, she was a brand new believer. She didn't, I guess she didn't know any better, but she told her kid, if you do that again, Jesus won't love you anymore. <laughs> like, oh, mercy. <laughs> Woo, we got to do some work here. Do not say that to your child. All right. Uh, but the thing is, we want to see our kids grow in the, in the Lord. So that's why then... When you're, if, you're, if let's say that when your child turns 10, you believe they became a Christian, and at age 12, if let's say you and I are talking, and I'll say, well, have you seen a change in their life in the way they relate to you and your, and, and your husband or your wife or, or to their siblings during these two years? 
you want to be, be honest with the answer. You say, well, you know, not a whole lot's changed. Well, they, they may not know the Lord. That's not a mark. It's not a, it's not a bad thing to say. Remember, just because you pretend your child's a Christian doesn't make him a Christian. Heaven's a real place, and there is only one way there. And that's for those who genuinely believe in Christ. So if somebody has convinced themselves they believe in Christ when they don't, now we've got a problem. And so we want to make sure that we don't approach it that way. So remember, we're not saying, for example, little kids cannot get saved because they can. All we're saying is we want to make doubly sure because they are children and can be easily swayed to do all kinds of things. I've seen it happen. I've seen a, it was a video because um, I've never been involved in this, but it was uh, sometimes churches would do a thing in the neighborhood with what they call backyard Bible clubs. And they get different. It's kind of like VBS on the road. And so you, have a, you invite all the kids in your neighborhood, they come over and they have, you know, punch and cookies and whatever and play games and there's a Bible story and all that kind of stuff. And I saw a video and there was this lady, she was teaching them the Bible on Monday and Tuesday and on Wednesday. She basically said, all of you little kids who want to go to heaven, raise your hand. Well, all the kids raised their hand. So then she said, repeat after me. And so she went what we call the sinner's prayer. And then she reported that there were 35 kids who became Christians. Uh... Maybe some of them did. That's not how you do that. They had no understanding of the gospel and what that meant. Uh, and um, so we just want to make sure that we don't get caught up in that, uh, you know, one, to one extreme or the other. So, you know, again, like I said, some people will say that little kids cannot get saved. That is untrue. Um, they can. But we want to make sure that we're not jumping the gun when it comes to that. And so remember that adults can do the same thing, all right? People sometimes will, be, will become a Christian because they think it'll save their marriage. It, it might, but that's, that's not why you believe in Christ. Because what if he doesn't change your marriage? I've known people who become believers in the, in the midst of horrible divorces, and the divorce still happened, and their partner still lied to them, and, they, and, and it was still bad from then on out with that individual. The God didn't, God didn't fix that. There's no, there's no promise in the Bible that God's going to magically fix it. So sometimes we have to be careful because sometimes we, kinda, we can connect things like that for people. And they're, they're going to hear what they want to hear. So someone says they're having trouble in their marriage, and we then say, you know, if you just come to the Lord, the Lord will fix all that. Don't say that. Because what they hear you saying is, when you say the Lord will fix that, what do you mean by that? Well, what they hear you saying is, the Lord will fix your marriage, there will be no divorce, and your husband or your wife will be a completely new person. That's not what the gospel is about. That doesn't say that. So we've got to be careful we don't connect those two things for them. Now, they become a believer, and they change. Let's say the spouse becomes a believer, and their marriage improves. That is great. And yes, God does do that, and God can do that. But we're not using saving the marriage as a carrot, saying, come believe in Jesus, because that's no different than the individual who says, if you believe in Jesus, he'll make you rich. Or if you believe in Jesus, he'll heal you of cancer. God can do those things. But that, that's, we're not, you don't connect those things to believing in the gospel. We come to Christ because we're sinners. Because we've rebelled against God. We've offended God. And we deserve eternal death for what we've done. And we want to avoid judgment. I do want to go to heaven. I do want to please God. And so I, I confess my sins to God, I repent of my sins, and believe in Christ. And if God saves my marriage or God gives me a better job, that's great. 
But that's not necessarily so. And in many countries, you become a Christian, everything gets worse. If you become a Christian in some countries, you lose your job. In some countries, you become a Christian, you lose your family because they think you've betrayed them. Uh, that happens every day. And it's not just Muslim countries. You know, Hindu countries, same thing. Uh, someone becomes a believer, not in every family, but in many. You become a, a, a Christian, the family believes you've betrayed. you betrayed the family. you betrayed your, your race. you betrayed the family name. you betrayed your country because you've become a Christian. And that happens all the time. So we just want to make sure that we're not uh, going in that direction uh, when it comes to these things. Verse 23, he's, he's going to go on to a little more detail about if you're not a doer of the, what the Word of God says. For if, for if anyone only listens to the Word without obeying it, and being a doer of it, he's like a man who looks carefully at his own natural face in a mirror, for he thoughtfully observes himself and then goes off and promptly forgets what he was like. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. Uh, to my great horror, uh, I, this verse always reminds me of the exact same thing. Uh, when I was in high school, I did what a lot of high school boys do, which they're told not to do, and that is when I saw a zit, I popped it. Because I was not going to go to school with a zit on my face. And I remember one day I went and then looked in the mirror, and to my horror, I'm sure it wasn't the size of a golf ball, but to me it looked like the size of a golf ball, and I couldn't pop it. Man, I squeezed for all it was worth. And of course, you know what happens? It just gets red and seems to stick out even further, you know, like now I'm a unicorn or something. All right, so what I decided I would do is I would just go to school, and then after first period, I'd go in the locker room and see if I could take care of business. Well, you know what happened? I go to school, I forgot it was there. Forgot all about it. And then when I went to football practice and I'm getting changed, I looked in the mirror and to my horror, it seemed now it was glowing. It wasn't. But you know, when you're a teenager, when you're when you're a teenager, everything is worse, you know, because now, oh, I'm sure the entire school is looking at me and now they're writing stories about me, about how horrible this is, because I've got this gigantic knot on my head that's now glowing and whatever. So but the, the, the idea is, is that you can see yourself, you can look in a mirror, and then you, 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 just, you just forget. You don't think about it all the time. And so he's saying that's what you're like. So don't be like that. Uh, make sure that you do what it says. Verse 25, he says, But, so on the other hand, he who looks carefully into the faultless law, the law of liberty. So I want to stop there because I do think that's a very interesting phrase, the law of liberty. Because normally people don't associate law with being free. But the law of liberty, remember God gives us his law to free us from the bondage of sin. Okay? Sin puts you in the bondage in many ways. It's not just that the unbeliever is in bondage to sin and, and they are now basically in chains being reserved for judgment. Bondage is more than this. Think, think of the individual who's the addict. If an individual is addicted to heroin, how free are they? They're not free at all. That's all they think about, is they want to make sure they have the next hit. If they don't have money, how am I going to get money for that? I mean, that, that consumes them. All the other relationships begin to become less and less important because this is the thing. And heroin's not the only one. It could be alcohol, it could be all, and then there's the crazy, crazy, crazy stuff like meth and all of that, which seems to have this instantaneous effect on people. But the bottom line is, is that we, be, we become uh, you know, addicted, that becomes the only thing. And so God gives us this law because it frees us from the tyranny of sin 
so we can be free from that. I no longer have to live by my passions and give in to that. I'm free to make decisions, to, to live life to the fullest um, and make right decisions instead of being enslaved by whatever it is I'm enslaved to. And so he, that's, why he's remind, that's why he uses this kind of terminology, to let them know that that's what the law of God actually does for us. And so that's the attitude that we are to have. So again, he says, but he who looks carefully to the faultless law, the law of liberty, and is faithful to it and perseveres in looking into it, being not a heedless listener who forgets, but an active doer who obeys, he shall be blessed in his doing in his life of obedience. So the bottom line is this. You, if, as we read the word of God, study the word of God, and we seek to follow what the word of God says, we can say that you will be blessed in everything that you do. Just remember that we're not defining blessing the way that the secular world defines blessing. They define blessing usually only one way. You get more money. Now you might, but there's blessings come in many ways. So living in America, you know, our definitions of what it means to be poor and middle-income and rich is completely different from the rest of the world. All right, so I know that compared to the world, I am not poor. In America, I'm not rich either. But my life is very rich. You know, I have family, and I, it's, I'm hard-pressed to find someone in my family who doesn't know Christ. That's a great blessing. That's a fantastic blessing to have that. My kids, they still love me. I love them. All my grandkids love me. And it's not because I buy them gifts, because I don't always buy them gifts. And I love them. And we like being with each other. That's not about you, but my life's rich. I got good friends. I got people I can call. If I need something, there's some people, you know, there's, I've never had to do it, but I know for a fact that there are people that I know that if I was in a pinch and I needed whatever I needed, they would do it for me. That's awesome to know that. That's fantastic. So my life is rich in that way. And so I'm, I am blessed in many different ways uh, because of that. And I'm blessed with, I got decent health. It ain't perfect, but man, it's, it's, it's very good. And I'm thankful for that. So the idea is, so, so this is not saying that you're necessarily going to have your favorite job. This is not saying that you're going to always get a raise. This is not saying that, that you know, you'll never get sick. It's not saying any of that. But at the same time, it does say you will be blessed in whatever you do. You will find fulfillment. You will find satisfaction. And there's a lot of other things that God would do for us that, in a sense, is kind of like icing on the cake. And just so you know, remember, we're all, all right now, we're all living, regardless of what's going on in your life, this is still a pretty great country. If you've not been to other countries, this place has really got it going on. With all the problems we have, this place has got a lot of good things to offer. We still have a lot of opportunities with all the, the, the ways that I think sometimes government has just ruined things. It's still head and shoulders above a lot of places. It really is. And so, you know, God has already, already blessed us in that way. So we need to recognize those things and, and realize that, that God wants us for our life. One of the things that, that, that I've always noticed, and I've always thought it was very intriguing, and whenever I see photographs, I'm always looking at this, and, that is, and that's this one particular aspect. When it comes to photographs that come from countries 
where there's a lot of physical persecution of Christians, where they're being hunted, where they're being killed, where they're being just falsely imprisoned for like years, maybe tortured and beaten in those prisons. And you see pictures of these Christians when they meet and they're meeting in secret. They all have a smile on their face, all of them. You would think that they were gathering for something that, in fact, I saw one, there's this, there this house and it's an attic. I mean, it's not a whole lot of space up there, it's in Vietnam. And there was this group of about 20 men that were meeting for Bible study. And it, I mean, it's hot, it's cramped, there's not a whole lot of room. And it looks like these 20 guys are all in the same hiding spot playing hide-and-go-seek. They're all just smiling away. And when you realize why they're sitting like that, and why are they in that cramped space, because there's people who want to do them harm, so they can hear someone read the Bible and explain it to them, that's insane. That's incredible. And, and, that's, and that is true consistently in so many different countries where these Christians who face, sometimes it, it's a very real thing that someone will kill you because you're a Christian or the government wants you dead because you're a Christian. That does exist a lot more maybe than you are aware of. And they are just as happy. They would tell you, oh yeah, my, uh, my life is blessed. It's incredible. There's a whole new attitude that they bring um, to the table. And, and when they say that, they're not living in denial. If, if it, you're, you're never going to think, oh, those poor people, they don't even know how bad they have it. No, they know. They know exactly how bad they have it. But they love Christ. They know how much Christ loves them. They know that this life is not all there is. They believe the promises of God about the future. Uh, they've experienced the forgiveness of their sins because they understood how, how much that they deserve to be punished for what they've done. And they are, they are genuinely happy and thankful. And so all of that is available for the believer. We live in a society in our country where we are now number one in the world of having the highest percentage of people who are on antidepressants and anti-anxiety medicines. Number one in the world. I mean, it's, it's insane what it is. It's, it's you know, it's, it's uh, people in, in, our, in our society, in our culture are just basically they're unhappy for all kinds of reasons. And it continues. And um, I'm convinced that a majority of that is spiritual. It really is. And it's worse. You're getting worse for people who are raised in the culture we have now because in a sense it's all they know. They don't know that in one, when we say that it's in your head, it doesn't mean that you're not really experiencing real things because you are. It's not, we're not saying that. But there's a way out. And yes, yeah, sometimes it is hard. No one's saying it's easy. It's never been easy. But Taking those meds, most of the time, is not going to fix what's wrong. It's not going to fix it. You may feel better, you may feel calmer, but you still have the same problem. And you still have to take the medicine. When the medicine was first introduced, what was supposed to happen was, you take the meds, and then you get counseling, and the meds put you in a better mood, so you can then attack the problem without being, whether it's severely depressed or what have you, and you overcome it, then you get off the meds. That's not what they do. They just give you the meds. How do you feel? Good. 
good. They would just keep it. And then, and after a while, if it's not working, they give you more or they change it. And that, that's it. And it, it's, a, it's a problem, I think, because here's, think of this, and I've seen people experience this. So let's say you're taking medicine for anxiety. And when you take this medicine for anxiety, you are feeling calmer. And, that's what, and it does. It, it does work like that for a lot of people. What happens when you enter a time in your life when your stress level outpaces your medicine? You are not equipped to handle it. Because what have you been doing for the past 10 years? You pop a pill. You've never had to deal with it because you take the pill. And then, and this greater level of stress may not last for years and years. It may last for months and months. But there's only so much of that they can give you. And so you end up now with sleepless nights, you live in fear, you're highly agitated. I mean, all kind of stuff happens. And believers, we, there's already enough bad things out there for us, for us to deal with that we, that, we, that we need all that to be added to, on top of it. And so I'm convinced that the reason why I caution so many people about the medicine is that I believe that it can make us weaker spiritually. We don't intend for that to happen. And we don't want it to happen. Nobody says, I want to be weaker spiritually. Nobody says that. But it has that potential. And we live in a society where we want everything easy. We want everything instant. I know I do. You know, I've told you before, I went to McDonald's once for breakfast, which probably already I shouldn't be doing. But I went there for breakfast, and I went inside because there's too many cars in line. And I'd already been working in the yard for a while, it was summertime, and so the, you know, the sun got up early, and I was trying to beat the heat. And I was hungry, and I was not in a good mood, which is not right. And the lady was being as nice as she could be. And she says, sir, she goes, your food's coming. Just want to make sure you have it fresh. Nice lady. And I said, oh, I don't come here because it's fresh. <laughs> I come here because it's fast. And that's not what I'm, you know, that's, that was not nice. So I told her I was sorry. All right, but the idea is we want, we want things instantly. And I know I do. So there are some things that can take a while to get over. And they can be hard. It can be very hard. But we have been conditioned to think a certain way. It's, and it started in our country in the 70s. And so a lot of people don't want to do all the reading on all that kind of stuff. But I'm just convinced that it's really made a lot of inroads into the Christian life. And there are a lot of Christians who suffer needlessly. So now let me just say this. If you're on the stuff, it's not necessarily a sin. And if you want to get off, that's good. But don't just stop. That's very dangerous. Because right? those medicines mess with your brain. And you don't want to mess with your brain. So if you want to get off, that's good. There's a way to do it. The first thing you do is talk to your doctor. Tell them you want to wean off. And then, on top of that, what you want to do whether it's with your shrink or with someone else, you want to have someone you can talk to so that when you begin to experience the changes that come when you get off the medicine, or let's say if it's anxiety, your anxiety levels begin to ramp up as you get off the medicine, you want to be able to work it through with someone so you can learn how to handle those things. All right? So it's not just so it's not only about only getting off the medicine. You still have to have someone else to talk to, maybe two other people to talk to, hopefully a very strong Christian to work that through so you can build basically those mental muscles you need to be able to deal with the stress or whatever it is that's going on in your life that you want to overcome as a Christian. All right, so don't just, so if you have friends who are doing it, don't just go, oh, you shouldn't be doing that. Just stop. 
don't do that because then they will go crazy. Um, and uh, so, so it does. So there has to be a good deal of caution when it comes to that. But again, remember we we are living a life that Jesus has already told us that we're going to experience tribulation. We're going to experience trials because we're Christians. And so for some of us, maybe for many of us, and many more in the future, it will there will be more stress on you as a Christian than anybody else. Because if our country's finances begin to collapse, everybody's under that stress. But we may be under more stress because people are going to want to blame somebody. And who do you think they're going to turn to? They used to always turn and blame the Jews, which they still do. But they, oh, they don't like Christians. Remember what they already, what they all, what people already tend to think about us. They already tend to think that if you're a Christian, you're a fundamental and you are a wacko. Just listen to how they describe people in the news. You are, you are an extremist. I know I'm considered an extremist. Guarantee you, I'm considered an extremist. I don't think I am, but I tell you what. So there's going to be even that, there's going to be greater stress on us as well. We've got to be able to handle that. And God is going to equip us to do that. Uh, that's for sure. But again, it goes right back to the very beginning of what we're covering. And what's that? Read the word of God on a regular basis. Right? If, you, if, uh, if, you, if you're going to, if you're going to send... If you're going to send the army into war, what does your army do before they go to war? They train. They train specifically for what they're going to uh, meet up with, whether it's terrain, whether it's the way the army, whether it's the way their, their soldiers fight, whatever it happens to be, there's going to be training for that in advance. You're going to play sports. You do certain things to prepare yourself for what they call the heat of the battle. Right? That's why there's so much repetition. In all the, in anything you do in the training, there's always a lot of repetition. Why is that? So then when you're in the heat of the battle, whatever that happens to be, then you can automatically do what you've been training to do. It just, it kind of takes over, all right? Uh, you, if you ever, if you're in an accident and the EMTs pull up, you want EMTs who've been trained. Because what you don't want to do is the EMT pulls up and they come up to you and they go, okay, let's Google this. He's bleeding from the neck. <laughs> Uh, there's a bone sticking out of his pants, you know, and they're trying to, that, that's not what you want. You want someone who can look and assess the situation, right, and start making snap decisions that are going to save your life, right, and at least save you from pain. I mean, I know the internet's great, but I don't want them using that. <laughs> I don't want the guy that knows what he's doing, or she knows what she's doing, all right? So that's kind of the idea. So the way that we prepare ourselves for the future, always, because we don't know what's going to happen to us, is we read the whole counsel of God. We read the Bible. We study the Bible. And as we do that, then we will be better prepared for whatever comes our way, whatever that may be. Um, and that's what we want to be able to do. So moving on. Uh, verse 17. So then, Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. So after he's told us to um, uh, let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, he says, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus means that whatever you do, you're doing it because of who Jesus is. All right, you're, you're, kind, of, you're kind of doing it in a way that will please the Lord. That's what he's getting at. So here he tells us in everything that you do, everything. There's, there's nothing out of, so the way you deal with your problems the way you even argue with your wife or with your husband, the way you correct your kids, the way you handle things at work, the way you handle problems at work, the way you handle problem people at work, right? That doesn't mean if you're a Christian and someone needs to be fired, you don't fire them. 
By golly, if they need to be fired, fire them. Right? It's not saying that. But you do everything in such a way that it will please the Lord. You're doing it right. You're doing it morally. You're doing it ethically. You are doing it with kindness. You're doing it with grace. You know, all those things. You know, that, that, there's, a, there's a consistency in who you are. But you, everything you do, you do it to the Lord. You do it for the Lord. You do it in the name of Christ. Uh, and, and, and we can achieve that as believers. God wants us to live that way. And again, that's, that really is a life, uh, a life, I think, of freedom. And then, of course, he, when he says that, he says, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So the idea here is that, that when he says whatever you do, that means make no exceptions in your life. So that meant that day when I was at McDonald's and I was waiting for my food when I didn't want to wait, all right, what God says to me is, Bob, in whatever you do, in word or deed, do in the name of Christ. And what I did was not. But then I reacted to it the right way, to my failure. And so I told her that I was sorry and said that I should not be so impatient because that was correct. And I thanked her for the food. And it was fresh. It did taste good. Uh, and I went on my merry way. So the idea is, is that we want to make sure that, that, this, that we live this way as believers. We, we do not belong to ourselves. We have been purchased by Christ. Okay, he's done. He's purchased us. All right? he's, he's freed us from the power of sin, but he has, he has purchased us with his blood, with his life. You know, he was our substitute. We, we owe him in that sense, besides the fact that God has created us in his image, and, and we owe him our obedience anyway because he's given us everything that we have. Uh, so in a sense, it's doubly true because of what God has done to redeem us uh, for himself. So again, when, when it says that we do all these things in the name of Jesus, we are, doing it by his, we are doing it by his authority. We are doing it in recognition of his authority. Um, we, are, we are doing it to his honor. That's kind of the idea. We're doing it to his honor. Um, and so we want to honor the Lord with what we do. Then he gets into real specifics. So this is where people want to just skip this part and go to chapter 4. <laughs> but we're not going to do that. So he says, wives... Submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. So when we read that, some people hear this. Wives, submit to your husband because he is your master and you are his slave. It's not what it says. Right? It doesn't say that. It says, submit to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. So God is made, obviously, when you go back to Genesis, male and female. We have different roles. We all are made in the image of God, and we are all equal in that way, in every way. All right? This is not based on intellectual superiority. This is not based on spiritual superiority. It's none of that. It's, it's the roles and responsibilities that God gives to us. God did create the woman to be the helpmate to the man. That's what the scripture says. It's not a demeaning thing. You know, we live in a country where if you serve someone, it's demeaning. That's ridiculous because everybody serves somebody anyway. Uh, but the Bible, so it's not that. This submission is to be one where there, that it is the desire of your heart as a woman to follow the lead of your husband. Now, that's going to put a lot of responsibility on him because it doesn't mean you follow your husband because he's the boss. It's not what it says. All right? Because it tells us that we need to do this in a, in, in a way that is befitting of the Lord Jesus Christ. The marriage relationship is to be a picture of how the church is to submit to Christ. 
Right? In the same way that we, we, when we read the Bible, when we hear uh, someone preaching, we hear someone teaching, I want to be fed the Word of God to know what I am to do, or to reinforce what I'm doing right, or to change what I'm doing wrong, or whatever it happens to be. There's a willing submission to what the Word of God says. So in a marriage, then the husband and wife, they are equal in every way. They are creating a new life together. Right? That's, that's the way that that works. They can discuss everything. They, and they will probably make most decisions together. That's, there's nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing. I've even had some individuals say, well, you know, I, I had this guy tell me once, he said, well, I know that the man's supposed to handle the finances. And I go, uh, excuse me. I said, where is that in the Bible? Well, you know. I go, no, I don't know. I said, if your wife is good with money, by all means, let her take care of it. I mean, if you both agree, that's not, that you're not submitting to her. You're not asking her permission to do anything. You're saying, hey, you're really good with money. Here, that, that's awesome. I said, you should be, now, there's a lot of men who wish their wives were good with money. They don't, they don't want to handle that. They have to handle all this other stuff. So it doesn't mean that. So you guys use each other's gifts and strengths and weaknesses to work out this new life together that you want to build. Uh, and, and, it's, and it's worth all the stuff that you have to go through. So this whole thing of submission, it is in the Bible. It's a biblical thing. And it is going to be, it will always be more successful. It will be better as people who are growing as Christians. Because then both people are going to have the right attitude when it comes to that. There's going to be mistakes along the way. You're going to have conflict. We're human beings. We're sinful human beings. That's going to happen. But the husband is to be the lead. So, and there's a lot of ways that can look in a marriage. But in the end, it, will, it does mean certain things. Right? So, number one. Uh, if the husband decides that they're going to go to a church that his wife likes instead of a church that he decides that's best for the family, and she likes to go to a church that, let's say, that doesn't teach the Word of God really well, but it has a lot of other good programs, and even though he would rather go to a church that he thinks is more faithful to the teaching, but he wants to, for the sake of peace or whatever his reason is, they're going to go with his, wife, his wife's choice, then everything, I believe, that happens in that family spiritually that's negative, it's on him. And God's going to judge him for that. It doesn't mean the wife's not responsible too. But God holds him responsible, responsible for that. Period. Because I've known men who've done that. Well, my wife would rather go... They don't always know they're throwing their wife under the bus, but that's what they're doing. You know, they just don't want to make the decision. I said, man, dude, it's your decision. You, you need to do this. You need the spiritual leader. Being the spiritual leader of your home does not mean you know more than your wife, because you may not. It doesn't mean that. She might... In fact, I knew a guy once, he, his, his wife had graduated from seminary. And the reason why she graduated from seminary, she just wanted to know a lot about the Bible. She had no intentions of going into any kind of ministry. She just wanted to know a whole lot more about the Bible. And she did want to teach Sunday school. And so she got a degree, uh, got, got, a, got a Bible degree. She knew, the, she knew it way better than he did. But, you know, she, she never said to him, uh, you want me to do what? <laughs> you know, she... She wasn't going to say, I don't think you're fine with it. That's not what she did. All right? Yes, Miss Scarlett. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Because that is God's order. That's why mm-hmm. we set it up, and that's why everything gets messed up when we get out of God's order. Absolutely. You know, uh, if you like football, which I think you should, but if you like football, <laughs> um, you know, normally, I mean, the game has changed a lot, but normally still, the way it works, when your team has the ball, the quarterback is in charge. He is not in charge because he's the best football player. It's hard to judge who the best football player is because everybody has different roles to play, right? Like he can't play offensive line, he'll get squashed, right? Because he's not built for that. But someone has to be in charge for the team to work together. Because he has the ball in his hands, it only makes sense for this guy to do it. You know, you don't have the offensive tackle saying, uh, you know, calling the plays. He doesn't have the right view of things. And he doesn't have the right association. It has to be the quarterback. But, he, but it's not because he's the most important person. He's, it's not because he's the best person. Right? That's the role he has to play. And, and he has to. Um, so when it comes to then the marriage relationship, it's this role that we have to play. It's this responsibility that God gives us. Uh, and there is to be a working together. But it is incumbent upon both the husband and wife. Uh, and this is where sometimes I think we miss the boat on marriage. Is there's this is to be this mutual working together, okay? It is it's a we thing. It's always a we thing, right? It's supposed to be that, and it doesn't mean you're going to agree on everything. It doesn't it doesn't mean you're going to you're not going to agree on everything, uh, but but you you can't get out of this. And then you can talk to my wife whenever you want to. Um, she'll tell you that she is glad that I'm in charge. <laughs> she said one time, "I'm glad you're in charge because if something goes wrong, it's your fault." <laughs> but, uh, but you know, we make, all, we make almost every decision together. Uh, but when we left Hawaii to move here, uh, I mean, I did decide that. But I didn't decide that without her knowing. You know, we talked about it. But in the end, I had to make the decision. I said, it's, it's okay. Yes. Well, Christ submitted to God. Yes, he did. I mean, I don't Yep. Yeah, there, absolutely. Um, then and we, here he says, husbands, love your wives. Uh, so let me just say, uh, husbands, when it comes to this, loving your wife, one of the things that, that loving your wife means is that you make your wife feel like she is the most precious person on the planet. Period. That's, that's what it's supposed to be. She has to feel absolutely secure in that sense. That... As far as you are concerned, she is the most, so it's more than just the more, most important. Okay, it has to be, it's precious as well. All right, so there's this idea that you are providing and you are protecting and you care about every aspect of her being. All right, which means not only that you are nurturing her and protecting her from outside forces, that would be from you as well. Doesn't mean that you can treat her the way you want. Like, you know, like you can be the boss or you can, you know, whatever. It doesn't mean that. The idea is you, you want to make her feel that way. Um, now, that doesn't mean that she's going to say, well, you're obviously failing me because I don't feel like that. Okay, that's not, <laughs> we're not going there. Right? That doesn't mean that you have to buy her a Mercedes Benz or whatever it happens to be. It doesn't mean that. All right? but, there, but there is that idea that's there, and that's what that means, all right? To love your wife. Um, and he adds to that, don't be harsh. Now, the only thing I can figure out in the Bible is that there's no random statements ever made. So, there, there would seem then that according to the scripture, men would have a tendency in one way or another to be harsh with their wife. 
whether it's tone of voice, whether it's, it may be physical, may be emotional, doesn't really matter. He says that, so we have to be especially on guard with that, right? So we're supposed to be gentle and kind to our wives, not to be harsh. And so we need to, we need to be aware of that. Uh, and again, these things will be easier and come more naturally if the word of Christ is dwelling in us richly. Because remember, the word of God affects your heart. Because that's if, you, if you're harsh with your wife, it's because it's in here. And that needs to be, so it's not just, beha- it's not just behavior change. Right? It's heart change. Heart change will bring about behavior change. You still want to change the behavior, right? It doesn't mean treat it the way you want to your heart changes. Right? You still need to do what's right. But the bottom line is, is you want to make sure that that's what you're doing. So, again, one of the things that made Christianity unique was it gives instruction about every aspect of life when other religions didn't do that. Zeus does not care about how you treat your wife or your husband. Right? Those who worship the goddess Venus, there was no marriage seminar uh, coming out of that temple. Right? The god Bacchus, which is the god of wine, there was no seminar on how to raise your children. It was get drunk, kill the cow, give us some money, and go home. You know, kind of a thing. So Christianity is really very different. And God is concerned with every aspect of your life because he's created every aspect of your life. And he wants every aspect of our, we want, he wants us to flourish. And he wants our marriages to be great. He wants that friendship you have to be close. He wants it to be intimate. He wants it to be satisfying for those, for those individuals in that relationship. And God is going to bring that about in your life. But he's not going to do that separately from the word of God dwelling in us. It, it's it's an it's a all-in-one kind of thing. Um, so that's why one of the best things you can do for your marriage is to make sure you're growing as a Christian. It's really important to do that um, and not to ignore that. We'll get more into that next week because our time is up. Um, we're a minute over. I apologize. Uh, but we will get more into this. And then we'll talk a little bit about children um, and uh, what the scripture says about that and parenting, and then we'll go from there. Father in heaven, again, we thank you as always for, again, your goodness, and we do thank you, Lord, for the specific instructions you give us in, in the scripture. We pray, Lord, as we continue to go through what it says in Colossians, that you help us to, to grasp what uh, you are seeking to communicate to us. I pray, Lord, that for each one here, you would give to us a very strong desire, Father, to follow what your word says, to live in obedience to scripture, to recognize your authority, to say what you say. And to realize, Lord, that you really do know what is best. Help us, Father, to, to not cling to sometimes a lot of the, the real bad ideologies that maybe we've been raised with or maybe we're surrounded by in the secular culture we live in. But, Father, to be committed to you and your word. So, Father, we thank you, Lord, again, for your faithfulness to your promises to us. We thank you, Father, for your goodness, for your desire, and your willingness to forgive us to cleanse us from unrighteousness, and to give us the help that we need. Keep us safe as we go home. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.